0: Do not mistake expertise in one field for expertise in another. Like, expertise does not carry across fields and domains of knowledge.
1: That's a very good point, because I feel like the general public thinks they understand COVID, for example, because they're so good at other things like their regular day job that they think that they can apply whatever knowledge or that the fact that they're smart in their general job to other things like science.
0: Also, another fun fact, Uh, I'm going to two for today. Dunning-Kruger effect is not what people think it is. It's not actually people um, like dumb people thinking they're smart. It's just that if you don't know enough about a domain, you can if you evaluate your performance in that domain inaccurately. And, but another interesting finding is that folks who had performed really poorly overestimated themselves, and the top quartile of performers actually underestimated themselves. So where you might have a steep performance gradient, you actually have a less steep evaluation gradient where the ends of the line are above and under there ris- you know the left and the right side of the graph um so i think that's actually two that's two really good places to start with the notion of generalists versus specialists and the pitfalls that um we might encounter as uh specialists
1: before we even get into that topic I really like the Dunning-Kruger effect, and I feel like people don't talk about it enough. But actually, well, maybe nowadays it's more well known. But you essentially explained it already. But my question was, how do you know which, like, where you fall on that expertise level? Like, how do you yourself kind of determine whether you're an expert or a novice? Just you personally, I'm just wondering.
2: I I, I think. If your source is a tertiary source as to how you consume your knowledge and that's all you're basing your current knowledge off of, like if you're saying, Hey, I read this article that talked about a study or like I read this news journal and they talked about this new study that came out from like Czechoslovakia, which doesn't exist anymore. And they talked about this and how like COVID is so bad in people who are blind like you you have only taken the face value of everything that you've consumed off of that news article and you have not willing you're not willing to dive any deeper so how can that how can you be an expert in that because so many other people are also reading the same article and consuming it at that same level if you're not willing to go right to the primary source or at least secondary sources then everything you're saying you're not you can't be an expert in it just say you don't know enough you know, like, I think that's the other thing I'll get to soon, like, so I'll get to you right after. Um, but I think what people have kind of lost track of is just saying, I sorry, I don't know enough about this topic. I think everyone kind of feels this pressure to act like they do know when they really don't.
0: I agree, but I would go farther and say, and so Chris, to answer your initial question, how do I find, how do I determine how much I know or how I sort of deem My level of of expertise in a certain area, I would say it's twofold. It's the time spent in a topic, but also the breadth of sources. So to both of your points, there's an article. I would argue that it's important to consume content across the spectrum to get a full sense, a more full sense of what is actually happening in the field. One example that's not spicy is uh, string theory. Like there's huge proponents of string theory and then there's those who think string theory is totally bunk and it's just a bunch of people inventing 17 – I'm exa- actually, I'm not exaggerating. Like some ridiculous amount of dimensions to justify the cohesion of our three dimensions. So I'm not saying I'm an expert in string theory. Like I watch a couple of, you know, pop, pop science YouTube videos. But it's like it seems that there's a debate going on there and – acknowledging the existence of uncertainty in any field is the first point of reaching some degree of experience and i think that's another thing experience and expertise are also largely conflated um but it's breadth of knowledge it's time spent in an area and as i think it was socrates said i know that i know nothing which is to your point faison of saying i don't know but given the data i have in front of me i can give this statement with X accuracy or precision.
1: I like the thing that you guys both said, which was you have to be able to say you don't know because maybe it's like our education that makes it seem like we need to always have an answer. But I found that recently people are so set in a way, it's almost like they, when they choose a viewpoint, they choose it like they're part of that team now, right? And it's become such a common occurrence like you have a political party like i'm a liberal like you you are suddenly so pro-liberal about everything you can't be a centrist anymore or say like you're an (laughs) anti-masker you are so anti-masks like they defend it as if they're becomes your identity yeah exactly it becomes our identity like it's it's irrational how offended people get about these things like when you try to have like we were saying in the episode that we never released about having uh good faith conversations part of that is being able to have an open discussion about just things that are controversial and like not taking people's uh like not taking conversations uh to to the heart like just trying to be uh, open to criticism but i feel like nowadays people are not like that like people get so offended
0: There's a lot to unpack in there, but the first point is sunk cost, which is basically, and I would, I would blow it out even more than just political affiliation, but any kind of identity, any kind of like component of one's identity or even just belief system. It's like people that loved, I don't know, American cars back in the fifties and sixties. American cars now are either garbage or they're owned by like European manufacturers, basically. So it's like there's no longer like enough, like an American car. But some people still swear up and down on the quality of Chrysler, thinking it's all American, but it's like it's not. So I said Chrysler, I could be wrong, but like the, the point stands. So the notion that people invest a lot of their time in a certain belief system or a certain point of view that's not just tied to their identity, it's tied to their whole past. So having to forsake that in the face of new knowledge is not just being like, I'm wrong now, it's that I've lived a lie, like that's how people see it, which makes them really reticent to do that. So I think sunk cost, that's a whole thing, and I just want to sort of highlight it at the very start. Um, And also just when it comes to that polarization, that's why, is because people have been so associated, or they associate so strongly with these various identity uh, factors, that when they're threatened in the face of uncertainty, they become more and more sort of animalistic. And I think the same could be said on both sides. Honestly, like in the, in the sort of name of good faith conversations, I think that that criticism could be levied at both sides that don't take the time to hear the other side out. Because the foundation of, I think, expertise is acknowledging one's ignorance and trying to take steps to uh, like amend it by hearing all sides of the conversation. And then using critical thinking to try and parse through what makes and doesn't make sense.
2: I was going to say, this is like total sidebar. Please don't put this in the podcast. Um, But you know how they're saying there's like a decline of um, like believers in religion or like religion is on a decline overall in North America or other educated, like in a lot of uh, first world countries or Western world, right? I was like thinking it's almost like the people who believe in all of these sorts of like almost like conspiracy theory level stuff, right? Like anti-masking, anti-vaxxers, um, that crowd of people who are like so, like we said, they, they need to belong to this sort of identity. I wonder if there's any association between them and their religious beliefs and kind of seeing like whether or not they've chosen to replace a belief in like a God or a religion with. Because that also forms an identity for someone, Right. Like you, you form an identity because you've, you're part of this group of people, and usually religious debates can get pretty heated because people don't want to be wrong. Because then you're like, well, you're saying that I, that I'm wrong in believing in my God or whatever, right? But then it's like, kind of what Alexa, you're saying that people take offense almost to, or I think it was Chris who's saying people take like offense to you saying, well, no, like vaccines are perfectly fine, and they're like, no, like you know, there's poison in the water, sort of like conversations, right? I wonder if there's any association between the decline of religious beliefs in the Western world and the like the increase in like conspiracy theory level associations or groups. Uh,
1: I actually, I actually, I actually think that that's a good point to include. I don't think we have to exclude it because my my response is that I initially like inside my like initial response is like i did i do kind of notice that right but i think it's more of a uh what do you call it like uh not a survivor bias or like it's like a confirmation bias because when you see religious extremism on tv and then they also just happen to be anti-maskers it's like you kind of you know put those two like two and two together right or like for example
2: like i like i'm not i'm not saying like a religious extremist would be like an anti-masculine i'm actually saying the complete opposite like i'm saying someone who who has who does not believe in religion anymore is like an atheist or agnostic like because those people have lost like an identity to a group are those people forming new group identities with these other extreme s- sorts of things
0: if i may if i may uh I think i have an answer to this just because like this is something that i'm really interested in but and a quick history lesson basically when nietzsche said german philosopher uh in the uh 19th 20th century said that god is dead he did not say that as a victory like it's like yeah we killed god like secularism and the enlightenment has finally won he almost said it as like a as a bell tolling for like the soul of humanity read into that as much as you will Basically, what happened in the 20th century with the rise of fascism, communism, the Nazi regime and all that kind of stuff is people replacing old school religion for new gods, which is basically the people, the economic system, the cults, you know, the cult of personality and all these systems. So what once was give people purpose, what once what sorry, what was once a source of purpose and community for people in a much more local level, because everyone had their local church, their local parish, or, you know, of other denominations. Um, I have a Christian background like that's so why I'm most familiar with that terminology. Uh, was supplanted by a larger systematic engine of control and governance in these dictatorships, basically. What I think happened after the wars is people got really scared of that. And then we've just replaced religion once again with a new idol. Rather, we replaced religion initially with the state um, in like my communism and, I guess, with the cult of personality. And now after that, we've, re- we've replaced it with consumerism. We've replaced it with a new form of cult of personality in the form of celebrities who are completely out of touch with the common man because they live in massive mansions and so on and all that kind of stuff. Like, they're people. They have feelings and all that kind of stuff. We shouldn't dehumanize them. But they don't know what it's like to work a nine-to-five um some do and like they're really down to earth about it other ones and like aristocracy and that kind of stuff so like there's a huge social divide now but for some reason people still need to fill that gap which religion left and it is these other ideas so defies on your point i think absolutely there's a lack of identity i think there's another interesting thing to be said about like globalism and a lack of national identity and like the notion of the nation state kind of collapsing under the weight of corporatism and like pan globalism with corporations being everywhere and nations having to bow down to the power of corporations. So even there, the sense of a national identity is becoming more and more um, subsumed in this corporate consumer identity. And now uh, it's just kind of reached a fever pitch where I would also argue that yes, science, like saying the science, like follow the science, what, what what's behind that I'm fine with. But that statement's super dogmatic. Like when you think about it, like science says, God says. Replace the rhetoric that we hear in like the Western world with God, Hitler, whoever, it sounds fucking terrifying. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm not saying that the world is unscientific far from it. There's tons of research being done daily and there's new insights being like uncovered, but the way it's being packaged is eerily similar to just shoving ideology down people's throat. You know what I mean? Where it's like and people. And again, in, in the name of good faith, asking why someone's doubtful. And I guess we can loop back to what we talked about was with our patients. Like I had tons of patient experiences where like they're, you know, patient is, I'm going to say, obviously they have clinical, they have symptoms of clinical depression, anxiety or whatever. And they're really, really hesitant to take a medication. What do I do? Do I tell them it's like, you're stupid, you're crazy, take this, it'll make you better. Like the science has solved. This is good for you.
1: No. That works every time.
0: Of course. Absolutely. Every time. Just like talk down to your patients. Right. But it's like, no, you need to, you need to be a partner for them to help find. What makes them tick and make them realize or at least give them a shot. And I told patients a million times like I personally and we can get into this as a topic. But it's like for me mental health is always more environmental and lifestyle like than necessarily like medication. Like a lot of times there's a lot of exacerbating factors in someone's environment that medications can help like as a band-aid, to give them some breathing room to fix those underlying things Rather than, uh, you know, a panacea of this is going to solve all your problems. But a lot of people don't treat it like that. So I told her, I'm like, look, take this time to get your other things in order. And then maybe we can consider getting you off of this. So like creating a long term plan. So instead of just attacking her and be like, this is you're dumb. This is good for you. Right. So in that spirit, it's like, yeah, we can we can sort of decry the anti. And again, I think anti-vax is in, like is is insincere or it's unfair because you have nurses and pharmacists who are refusing to get vaccinated. Are they anti-vax? It's like they've gotten all their shots professionally. They've, you know, vaccines are hugely good technology, but they're just skeptical of these ones for personal reasons. So it's like even even I find calling someone, painting someone with such a broad brush exacerbates the animosity. And I'm not saying that like
1: anti-Pfizer, anti-Moderna.
0: Sure, exactly. Let's call them anti-corporate. Right? We can call them anti-COVID vaccines. Like whatever, but it's like
1: That's actually that's actually probably a better word for it, because like usually they're not cynical of science itself. They're like cynical of the science that was done.
0: With with heavily with heavily tilted corporate interests. But like
1: imagine the media started calling them anti-corporate instead. Everyone would blow up. Pfizer
0: stock would drop. If we rebranded anti-vaxxers as anti-Pfizers, whole oh boy. Oh boy.
2: <laughs>
1: Anti-Pfizers. Yeah, imagine that. Anti-corporates. Oh my god. Suddenly everyone is woke. Everyone's anti-corporate.
2: Pfizer, please sponsor us. And we will stop saying this.
1: Um, no, man. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and I mean,
0: again, I'm I'm not here to like side with anyone, because again, I don't know shit. <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> but like, the notion of just being open for conversation and like And then what? Like the other side paints us as, you know, sheeple. Yeah, the fucking sheeple. That's such a great expression. It's like, yeah, we're sheeple. They're also dehumanizing us and they're not doing their case any favors either. But I think the sooner we get out of that death spiral of just slinging insults and dehumanizing and strawmanning the other side. The sooner we can come to an agreement. It's like, yo, are you comfortable being called an anti-Pfizer? Yeah, I am. Sweet. Let's make that a label. Like
2: I I, th- I think the interesting thing is, Alexa, and I don't know, I don't I don't think I can make the right call about which one is more dangerous, is like science, like science anti-science extremists or religious like extremists and fanatics. Because the core difference between the two is like if someone were to believe in a religious belief, at the end of the day, it's pretty much faith based. Like, it's like, you know, it's like you can't prove God exists and you can't prove God doesn't exist, right? Like, there's a core element of faith at the end of it. Whereas, when we're talking about science based belief, there is like logic and reason at the end of the day that you can still go back to. And like, it's not what I'm trying to say is. Like the harm, the potential harm to befall someone for believing in the wrong scientific thing is huge. Like the like the the general harm that could be done to a population. I and I don't know, maybe maybe I'm not thinking of it in the right way because you could say the same thing about religious belief being toted the same way. Mostly a,
0: a a choice to neglect scientific evidence. Typically has a personal impact. Like people who don't believe in taking Advil for menstrual cramps or something like that. They're like, oh, I'll just toughen it out. It's like, all right. Like they're not hurting anyone. Admittedly, now in the case of COVID, it's a little bit more complex where you have all these systems. But I would even go so far as to say people who smoke and they get COPD and then they're like frequent flyers at hospitals and hugely draining on the healthcare system's finances. Those are not decisions in isolation. So one could argue that's like, oh, you're not taking, you're not taking every single possible preventative measure to improve your health. You're culpable and you should be hated, right? But now we've kind of isolated out like, and like folks who don't want to take the vaccine. But it's like more broadly, it's like, should everyone who doesn't take care of the health in absolutely every possible way, should they be sort of demonized and scrutinized? I don't know. But to your point about religion and health, I find that folks or science, folks who deny science typically do it in their personal space and they don't necessarily go out of their way. Um, uh, to like harm others. Whereas I think that with religious extremism, there's absolutely a case to be made for the harm of others as a means to propagate one's views.
2: But we are seeing harm of others now. How? Because people are acting out on others during the time of COVID.
0: Like how, what do you mean?
2: Like, like for example, and I'm not talking like suicide bomber sure is like a direct, like a direct harm that you can see like a consequence happening. I feel like with COVID and this anti-science movement, it's more of like this indirect
0: how many people were killed by depression and suicide because of all the mental health costs of the lockdowns globally.
2: But that's what I'm saying, right? Like
0: No, but those are lockdowns. Those are the measures. Those are the unforeseen costs of the measures against the against the pandemic.
2: Like like for example, like for example, right? Uh pharmacist destroyed 500 COVID vaccines. Got 3 years in prison, right? That's like you could potentially say That's like kind of like a a scientific suicide bomb because he was willing to destroy part of his life for three years to then harm or indirectly harm 500 people who could have received the vaccine.
0: I think that I don't I'm not a lawyer, but I think that with your example, there's a lot more ifs and ands. And like yeah. questions in terms of like who would benefit most from those vaccines? What would the actual like you know life saving cost there be? Whereas like there's a much more direct rapport with like religiously motivated harm.
2: Or or like or like you know that you know that lady out in BC. There's a lady out in BC who's calling for people killing uh, healthcare workers. Dude, there's people calling out for people to be
0: killed all the time. And again, we go back to that religious impulse. Like, dude, there was. I mean, again, there was a reporting years ago.
2: But but that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying I'm not saying that that level of fanaticism or 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 extremism is currently happening. But I'm it's kind of like little signs are showing here and there as this pandemic continues to go on.
0: Agreed. There's absolutely signs of mental health, strain, extremism, fatigue and all the ways that manifests in all people everywhere. Like it's governments are showing it, too. But yeah, sorry, Chris, go ahead.
1: I just want to go backtrack to the Faison's original point of religious extremism versus science extremism and anti-science versus anti-religion, etc. Like, and you said something like anti-science doesn't make sense. But as a counterpoint, and this is because I've had conversations with a lot of anti- Vaxers, anti corporate, whatever we're calling those people. Um, but their systems of logic are not the same systems of logic that we have, right? If you don't believe in science, then you don't, and you don't understand the process of science, then you don't necess- you can't say from your own perspective that their thinking doesn't make sense because their logic, by their logic, they make sense. And the same is The same can be said with people who are religious extremists. Like their logic is that God does exist. To us, it's an unfalsifiable hypothesis. We don't know if God exists. But to them, God exists and it's absolute because they feel it, right? That's their logic. So just just as like a small thing, like it's not to not to not to like diffuse your point or anything, but it's just like people just exist on different levels of logic. And that's why it's so hard to have a conversation around these topics, because to cover this gap in logic and knowledge or whatever you want to call it.
2: It's almost like you're speaking different languages.
1: E- exactly. Like you need to speak to their like level. You need to, like everyone needs to like re-educate themselves.
0: Chris, I agree with your point 100%. I would just correct that it's not the logic that's different. It's the uh, priors and the axioms from which they start. It's the underlying assumptions that are different. Fundamentally, and again, living in Serbia, I have the very good fortune, I think, of being exposed to a huge gamut of perspectives. There's one group of people, predominantly in the West, that hold this axiomatic belief. The government cares about you as its citizen. In Serbia, not so. (laughs) Most people go with the assumption they're a bunch of corrupt assholes. You know, you try to get by, keep your head down, and not get fucked. Literally. So there is a fundamental difference of a perspective of someone who's experienced an abusive government in the face of larger abuses versus someone who has largely had a good experience with a benevolent government where things seem to be changing. So like fundamentally, there's the assumption of good intent on the part of governments. There's the assumption of good intent on the part of pharmaceutical corporations. And largely what I would say with all that we're talking about it's not science as a process. I think that even the people that are against, or that are against skeptical, however we want to call them, they don't, they, underst- like, they understand logic. They understand cause and effect. They understand, you know, sequences of events and so on. It's just that their minds start from a place of suspicion and, and skepticism. So the notion is that the science was compromised, right? This institution is compromised. Um, what, and I think fundamentally the issue is institutional compromise and the perception of it. So a lot of people that don't buy what like the CDC is selling, what the WHO is selling, and so on, they don't have an issue with science done independently. They don't have a, an issue with scientific inquiry done without commercial or compromised interests. I think it's just some people see more compromise than others. Whether that's perceived or not or if it's actually there is up for um civilized debate. And I have some facts on both sides. Like, you know who you know who c- controls the WHO? You know how the WHO is funded? It's on their website.
2: It's the US government.
1: No, it's not. It's China. <laughs> and then the c- and, and then the CCP just grabs him. Famous last words.
2: Alexa was never Alexa was never seen again.
1: I think that's another good conversation to have another time because I did want to talk about our main topic which was generalists versus specialists. But another good topic would be to go into the background of what scientific research is based on, because independent research is great and all, but um, where are you going to get the funding to do that? That's a great question.
2: You need money. (laughs) Money makes the world go round.
1: You need millions and billions and trillions of dollars to do research globally. Like, you're not going to get, like, a million vaccines into people's arms without that money. So...
0: I would – I, just a question to the listeners and I guess to the team so we can pick it up on our next on our next episode. But basically, where – who benefits from the dogma that RCTs are the gold standard? I'm not saying they aren't. But I'm just saying if RCTs are the only admissible evidence in the court of scientific opinion, public scientific opinion, who stands to gain from that? Organizations that can run RCTs. Who are the organizations that can run RCTs? those are the most funding. So versus anecdotal, yes, or maybe like other study designs at smaller scale, but that are actually like frontline clinicians doing their jobs in a sort of active and real setting in looking at evidence, not saying that there aren't confounders, not saying that there shouldn't be like a rigorous analysis done meta-analyses and stuff like that. But just like, I I just asked the question of, RCT specifically, with their fundamental assumptions of massive capital and size, who can execute them and then be and then being given this spot in the public discourse?
1: It's just impossible. Like you just like the amount of money. It's just it's just something you can't you can't overcome. And we'll talk about this more on another episode because I feel like that's actually something that's really I really want to touch on because. Honestly, scientific evidence is so fucking frustrating to read through knowing like when they, when they say, Oh, no conflicts of interest. It's like, ah,
2: you know, what's really, you know, what's really funny, Alexa, just to that point, And I know we'll, we'll cover it later. Um, if, if we only used RCTs, like RCT based evidence for psychiatry, uh, we would not be treating anyone because like, all, cause the, I mean, no one cares about psychiatry and mental health and healthcare. So Uh, there's like no funding for it. So there's, therefore there's, there's like so little head to head trials between drugs. It's so funny. So like, you can't even pick what is better because no one's willing to do head to head trials on medications after they're released.
1: Last point. You can't do head-to-head trials at all anymore because they're made by different companies So if you prove that one drug is better than the other, you're gonna ruin your relations with the other company But whatever, okay, we're moving on to specialists versus generalists. I hate science. Ah, I said it
0: (laughs) The pharmacist podcast that defaulted into tribalism and anti-science rhetoric, but no
1: or this, this last whole, the last two minutes was was facetious. Don't take it out of context.
0: But, uh, right. So, I think, okay, so we hit sunk cost. I'm going back to my five-point plan because I am that much of a nerd.
2: Um, and I think that I... And we're talking about sunk cost in the sense of being a specialist, right?
0: Exactly. Because the, and I guess this is that fundamental difference, is that being a generalist invites uncertainty. Because you understand that no single walk of life or field can unlock the mysteries of the universe. You understand fundamentally that you need to approach a problem from multiple directions. And guys, I think our previous conversation was exactly an example of that. We looked at an economic perspective. We looked at a fucking religious perspective. We looked at it a historical perspective. Like, if we lacked any of those aspects, the conversation we just had would be that much poorer for it, right? So... I think from from that reason, I think we made a solid case in point of the importance of having a broad view of things and really taking in different angles to have a wholesome understanding of the topic. So, from a specialist perspective, like, yeah, we could have had someone in our chat who is, like, super historically focused. But they wouldn't have necessarily been able to contribute as much because they could be like, ah, yes, well, actually, in this example and from this century and so on and so forth, it's like, okay, cool. But how does that feed into the broader conversation and does that really add? That's another problem with specialization is that there's actually diminishing returns. Like the closer you get to peak knowledge, like – the more years of study it takes, like for the first four, that's what an undergrad is like uh, with an undergrad, you're pretty decent in like all the areas you took. Then you do a master's, which is another two years to gain maybe that amount of knowledge that you had got from your four years of study. Then you do a PhD, which can be X amount of years to incrementally push the boundary of your knowledge, less and less for every like year spent in the study. Right. So obviously people make entire professions of things and that's where you have like PhDs and like world leading like experts in certain fields. But For their years spent at their like 30th year in the field, they're learning so much like so much more incrementally than you do in the first four, right? And I would even go further back and say like your time spent in like high school. Like in high school, what you learn, like you learn all of calculus, you know what I mean? Like up to like pretty much integrations and and derivations, um, which is like Newton-esque science up until grade twelve. Right. So like you're 18 years old and you know what Newton knew. Admittedly, he was like 28 when he discovered or 26 when he discovered calculus. But like it's faster. So there's a sense of time spent to learn something. And then there's that sunk cost. where It's like, oh, my God, I spent so much time learning and beginning like being the peak of my field. But what if that doesn't apply elsewhere? Which my second point reiterates, which is expertise in one area does not lead to expertise in another. So like people can be amazing astrophysicists. But they're shit philosophers, right? Or like someone can have a really good historical knowledge, but then they can't really comment on like literature, let's say, or astrophysics for that matter, or ethics. So I feel like there's – and there's and I think it's the fault of the public that someone sees PhD on someone's name and like, oh, shit, they're really smart. It's like they probably are, but they might not know what they're talking about in a given field. Smart about one thing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean same thing with pharmacists. Like we're hella good at drugs, Right. But it's like...
2: We're awful business people.
0: There we go, right? So that's that's kind of where I come at with that sunk cost notion is that people are so invested, especially if that investment turns out to maybe be wrong or misguided or something like that, then they really double down and feel like their identity is being attacked.
2: You, you, sorry, you actually see the same thing. Interestingly, I, I've heard that complaint from doctors where they... I've I've heard this from different doctors saying... Medical school didn't teach us anything about billing or like how to make money or like how to incorporate and anything like that. And that's like the main function of our of our profession is to be incorporated and to bill independently. And they're like, we don't know what to do with our finances. We're so in debt. And we're and like, yeah, sure, we make money, but like we have to also pay these debts off. And a lot of people don't know anything to do with any of this stuff. Right? So just because you're I mean, I'm not saying like just because you're a doctor doesn't mean you know anything like everything, but that truly is what it is. I mean, you are a doctor, but you don't know anything about business, unfortunately, even though business is tied into your into
1: your profession. Doctors need accountants too. And accountants need doctors and pharmacists. <laughs> so do
0: pharmacists. And accountants need pharmacists. Yeah, that's kind of the principle of like modern service-based capitalism is that we all have specialties and we all exchange goods and services in our domains of specialty. And that's when things work fine. But it's a problem when it becomes like commentary and expertise trumps that, or the perceived expertise trumps that.
1: So I guess for like for today's conversation, we're not trying to argue whether you should be a generalist or you should be a specialist, like not one's better than the other, because like we're kind of alluding to now, like specialists, if you are a pharmacist and you aren't, and you don't have good business sense, then you're going to need to partner with someone who does have good business sense, right? If you want to open a business, that's like your line of, if that's your career goal. So... Technically, with that with that in mind, it's like you don't have to be a generalist, right? Because you can just find someone else to help you. So we're not I, like for this conversation. Just like for my own sake, are we? Are we arguing for one or the other, or?
0: I would argue that being a generalist rounds one person – rounds a person out more in life and I think it gives them more angles to approach a given topic. I don't think that there's anything inherently morally bad about being a specialist. I just think that if one chooses to follow that route, they should be very aware of the pitfalls that that kind of uh, lifestyle or self-styling view of oneself entails. Um that's mostly it because i think that a lot of people or i'll put it this way i'll put it to pharmacy students we come out of pharmacy thinking sweet i'm like you know i finished uft or like i finished waterloo and i'm super smart and i'm like top of my class whatever but it's like the moment you finish school you're already outmatched by anyone who's been in the field for like two years because they know how to build and to do blister packs a million other things which you are just going to learn by experience so being that specialist of like, oh, I'm the best like pharmacy student. It's like if you haven't done anything else, if you haven't, and this is kind of harkens back to my episode with Andrew, if you haven't like differentiated yourself in any way and taken a sort of multifaceted approach to yourself as a person and yourself as a professional, you're not gonna be that hot commodity on the market. So to your point, Chris, I would at least personally, and I guess that's what great why we're a three-man show, is I would actually argue for generalism. The trade-off is that you don't know as much about any topic and you can maybe speak with less certainty on any given topic. But I think that that's made up for in breadth, understanding, sympathy for different perspectives and things like that.
1: Yeah. Even being a generalist is like you can specialize in your generalizability. Like you could be a generalist pharmacist but then – and you know a lot about different fields of medications but then – you suck at everything else outside of pharmacy (laughs) because there's so much to know even within the field of pharmacy to be a generalist as a pharmacist (laughs) requires a lot of brain power.
0: Absolutely. That is a really good point is that you can choose, I suppose, how broad your horizon is and then choose to like you can choose that horizon as your playground and everything beyond that still remains relatively unknown to you. And I don't want to make it seem like I know everything because God knows I don't. But I just have a particular interest in like philosophy, history, anthropology, and that kind of stuff, along with being a pharmacist. So, and I would also add that if one expands their circle of interest, it leads to my third point, which is synthesis. And sp- people in their specialized fields, they can obviously synthesize, but they're pulling from fewer resources. They're pulling from a from a more narrow uh, supply of information by focusing on a very narrow um, field. So they can't synthesize as much and have this cross-pollina- like cross-pollination like cross of ideas. Whereas when you're a generalist, you can attack things. Again, as we did in our conversation earlier, you can really approach things from so many different angles and come and really stress test your ideas against different perspectives.
1: Just a funny story about that. Um, I'm doing like my rotation in hospital in general internal medicine right now, right? And every time the team refers to a specialist, you're obviously going to know what they're going to say. Because when you refer to cardio, they're going to be like, oh yeah, this is a cardio problem. You got to you gotta start them on some like cardio medications. You got to like put them on a Holter monitor. But then they're, they're also having kidney problems at the same time, right? So like you refer to nephro and nephro's like, oh, you know, you got to give them Lasix, you know, their, their kidneys are not functioning. It's like... <laughs> Like like no matter what specialist you consult they're always going to say that the problem is within their field of expertise. It's like okay guys there has to be some kind of interplay here, right? But they'll they'll, at the same time like maybe maybe they know that there's some interplay and but they don't think it's in their realm of knowledge to talk about those things. I don't know. It's just funny to me just observing.
0: And And I think you make a really good point. We talked about this on a way earlier episode, which is like what's the job of a GP and technically a pharmacist too is to look at all the specialist recommendations and try to synthesize that into something that actually works for the patient. Holistic care. Because you can't just – Holistic care. You can't just crank them on every single specialist recommendation in a vacuum and expect it to work. That will most likely do the patient harm. Kill them. So, you need to find a balance. Yeah. You need to find a balance from all those recommendations and weigh the pros and cons of each, considering them each in turn – and then come with something come out with something, as Faizan said, holistic. So again, another point for generalists.
2: The the other thing that I wanna point out is I think I think there is like when we talk about specialization, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Alexa, is like truly being focused in that one area without giving any other area thought and just saying like, well, that's on someone else to figure out.
0: Exactly. It's the notion of like having blinders on. Like, I, and I feel like I, I did, a, I think we did, us a, I did us a disservice by not specifying what I mean by specialist, but yeah, it's, it's blindly adhering to one's area of expertise and also trying to translate things out of it that may or may not be applicable and done so out of ignorance for those other fields.
2: Like the reason why I point that out is some people could look at my like work experience so far and say like, oh, well, I primarily do um, psychiatry and mental health. Therefore, I specialize in that field. And but I would say that they're wrong, because even though my experience is within that field, it doesn't mean that I am not generalized in other realms. And, I, and what I mean by that is, um, for example, I was at Ontario Shores, which is a psychiatric hospital, but I was doing additional projects, right? Like I only wasn't just treating myself into the clinical realm of psychiatry and mental health. I was also doing other projects like antimicrobial stewardship. Um, I found myself gaining experience in other things so that I could easily uh, transfer my knowledge and experience from one thing to another. And it's almost like I think about, um, you know, like those character, um, you know, like those maps, was like strength, intelligence, dexterity, like those things. I feel like the benefit of being a generalist
0: like it's a star, it's a, like a star chart, like a star chart where you have like the five point, yeah, we have like the five or six points and then sort of as far out as the star arm goes to each point, that's how strong or weak you are in that specific area.
2: Yes, and and I think a generalist, the thing that is good with being a generalist is that you're, you have the flexibility to reallocate your points among that star chart without compromising on the other points so heavily. Whereas the specialist is like an all or nothing kind of deal. And the generalist can be more flexible that, okay, if I need more strength, I can allocate points towards strength, cut a little bit off of the other ones, but I still remain like grounded or well-rounded enough that, I, that I'm that i not out of my depth.
0: And I know the quote for today. Um, it's the jack of all trades. Like jack of all trades is typically uh, quoted, like that. that's used as a derogatory term.
1: Jack of all trades, master of none, right?
0: Yes. Is it? Yeah, it is.
2: I call myself a jack of all, tra- jack of all trades all the time.
0: <laughs> exactly.
2: I didn't know that was a derogatory term.
0: No, the full. so the first half of it is a jack of all trades is a master of none. Yeah. Like the, the fact that it ends on a negation implies a sort of negative connotation. But the rest of it is, but oftentimes better than a master of one.
2: Ooh.
0: There you go. So it's much like the curiosity killed the cat but satisfaction brought it back. There's a lot of phrases that we know
2: the- Wait, I've never heard the second parts of any of these quotes. Yeah, because no one talks about
0: it, bro, because the agenda is out to get you and make you a conformist. (laughs) I was such a specialist in short idioms. (laughs) This is like my random tidbits that I just kind of know.
2: Wow, I never knew these.
0: It's a fun fact, like also another one. These are kind of my three go-to ones, but you know the expression like blood is thicker than water? Yes. The implication being like family should be closer, like you, you can't replace family. The actual expression is the blood of the covenant, which means like agreement or sort of pact, is thicker than the water of the womb. So it's the decisions and choices and bonds you choose to make willingly are stronger than the ones that the relationships that life just handed you at random.
1: Who made these quotes? These guys are smart as fuck, man. No,
0: no. But see, that's the thing. These are, but here's the interesting thing about these is that they are quotes that we sort of take for granted and are kind of bandied about. But when you actually look at them deep and they all have the similar conformity trend where it's like curiosity, kill the cat. Don't be curious. Follow rules. Right. Matt, Jack of all trades. Like, you know, get a degree, be like a super, like be specialized at something. But when you actually read the other half of it or you get, you hear its context, you actually realize that it's in favor of bucking trends and trying to sort of be more flexible.
1: Just curious, where are these quotes from? Who wrote them? Like, who wh- is there actually an originator? I don't know if you can actually see the original ones, but just just because just because I'm not trying to say I don't believe you, I'm just like I'm like I'm so surprised I've never heard of this.
0: Honestly, yeah, that's a good question. But like, I this is a Forbes article.
1: So remember when when I said
2: uh, people who just like to read the articles and not the primary source? I don't know. Okay, fine. Let's go. God, do I have to go
0: Google it right now? Or-
2: you know, I read an article the other day that uh, the second half of quotes are never used. Sounds like whenever I talk to my patients about va- vaccines,
1: I, I'm not trying, to, <laughs> I'm not trying to shit on the quotes. I think that they're great. Like either way you look at them, like
2: I'll have you know, I have multiple sources. I just can't give them to you right now.
0: Yeah. Or my favorite one is educate yourself. I also may be full of shit.
2: I don't know.
1: We'll put them in the show notes. Offthescriptshow.com, by the way.
2: Uh, okay, I, I just want to give an example on that.
1: Uh, either way, it was a good thought experiment. I,
2: I want to give an example on the on the thing, the article thing that I had mentioned, because it was a very specific thing that I had gone through when I was talking to a patient. Um, they they were basically talking to me about like theoretical COVID treatments and how um, like they're like yeah, this article talked about the study um, and you know that, that's what the study was saying. And I was like, did you read the study? They're like, no, I haven't had time to read the study. And I was like, right. But like, you can't just go based off of what the article is because inherently whatever news site you're using has an agenda that they're trying to push. Um, one of the interesting things was, I'll, I'll give a historical thing. So on Facebook, someone had posted in the past, um, this article, This again, this article talking about a study about male contraceptives. And how there was a study that had been done on the use of like a male pill, a version of a pill. And that um the the, the study had been can or what, what do you call it? The study had been stopped because of the side effects of the male pill. And the side effects that the article had mentioned were like very similar to that of the female oral contraceptive. And the person who had posted on Facebook had said like, wow, like, uh, like m- men can't go through the same thing women can go through. So like, you know, like women have to go through it, but like a man can't go through it because of the study. I'll, you know, I will say I'm, I don't agree with the fact that, you know, the historical context of women using oral contraceptives only versus the, stu- the amount of money that's gone into male contraceptives. That's beside the point. What I decided to do was look further than the article and actually read the study. And what had happened was out of the small number of um, participants that they had, I don't remember how many it was, it's a long time ago, this is years ago, but the pool was small. I think it was maybe a hundred to 200 people. Um, I think three to five of them had become infertile and only one had recovered so far after two years.
0: Wait, this is patients taking the male contraceptive?
2: Yes, it was something like that. So, and then the study, and then in the study, it cited like because of the high rate of infertility due to this medication, we have decided to stop the study. So they weren't so concerned about the regular normal side effects. And in fact, if you again, if you read the study, they did a survey with the with the participants. And it was like 80 to 90% of them said that despite whatever side effects that they had been experiencing, they would willingly take a male oral contraceptive themselves, like they would still take it. So the participants had a high favorability for the, for the pill, for the male version of the pill. The study had been stopped due to the infertility side effect, the high rate of infertility, because we're talking about like 3% potentially of, of chance of infertility. Um, which I don't think is duplicated in female oral contraceptives. Um, and the article decided to just cherry pick the fact that this study was stopped because of side effects like um, the, the same ones that that women face, like hot flashes, whatever, whatever, right? Um, and that's what this person decided to then post on Facebook was like, well, this is why they stopped the study. But it was inherently wrong when you read the reason for the study And the fact that the male participants were willing to take the pill, right? Like the agenda was not that of like female versus male in the realm of oral contraceptives at all. But that's what became pushed because they just decided to read an article and didn't go beyond that to read the actual primary source. So every time I think of people citing articles, I just go back to that experience that I had, which was you have to look past the article and you have to read the actual study And if you don't know how to read studies, learn. Like you need to learn research methods and understand the science that's happening at the forefront.
1: Man, honestly, I'm so excited for a scientific research episode. That's going to be lit. I love scientific research, but I also hate it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Says the oncologist prodigy. Uh, I have one other point to add there. And this is maybe from a... Because I take the view that as healthcare providers... And people of science, we have a sort of, we should hold ourselves to a higher standard. Um, Making information accessible to the layperson. I mean, we do that all the time when we counsel patients and stuff like that. But I think it should also be another responsibility or criteria, I think, for easily or largely disseminated scientific literature to be accessible. And I I heard on a podcast somewhere, I can't remember what it was, but basically, if you're uh, kind of going to the specialist, but I'm not, I'm not like ragging on specialists here, but just as an example, like if you're in a very specialized field and if specialists one field adjacent to yours don't understand what the hell you're talking about, that's too specific. Like that's, if it's inaccessible and way too esoteric that even folks who are, you know, close to what you're doing don't get it, that's crazy. Like how the hell is that supposed to be any meaningful insight to like the layperson if if people that are close to you still can't understand it? So I think... To your point, Faison, it's up to the reader to really make the effort to understand what it is that they're making life choices on, uh, based on, and it's also up to the producers of knowledge to really try and make it clear. And if it's ambiguous and being like, it's really hard to draw conclusions. Some studies do that. Like I've heard tons of studies where it's like the the effects were so small or the sample size was so small and so on. More studies are needed. Classic, classic quote, but it's like, that's fair. Right. Um, I would also still argue that there's perhaps even some bias in that statement itself because it's like, oh, I'm a lead researcher in this field. It would be great if I got more grants to do more studies on this topic. So it's like there absolutely needs to be more studies on this field. (laughs) It's like, okay, Um, that's just the inherent nature of research. But um, to both your points, I think 100 percent it's really important that folks read and try and understand and not just stick to articles because articles journalism is dying in the 21st century.
1: Yeah, and honestly, if you don't know how to read scientific articles, just Google it. But they're gonna get more articles. <laughs> oh my God! True.
0: Start with start with the result, like start with the summary, like start with, like literally start with the abstract. You know the results and how the math was done, all that kind of stuff is pretty dense, and then get down to the conclusion.
1: Yeah, the abstract is supposed to be like the easiest thing, the most layman-friendly language that you can get. But even that...
2: Read the abstract, then go to the conclusion.
1: (laughs) But even that is hard to understand because to really understand research, you need to know the methods. You need to understand what. But like, you know, as a baby step... it's better to at least read the abstract.
0: I would also argue that a really good way of approaching this kind of stuff is there's a lot of really great YouTube channels out there of scientifically-minded folks, doctors, PhDs, and so on that look at evidence and look at articles and do an interpretation of it or at least try to like make it accessible to the layperson. Admittedly, when, when looking... At that method of interpreting or at least understanding scientific literature, it's important to understand the person's bias.
1: Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same as like reading an article. Kind
0: of, but I think that articles don't go into the technical depth that these people might. Like I, I, I know a couple of, I know a couple of like you, YouTube channels out there that really are like very deliberate in how they lay things out, and like they'll say it in the jargon of the article, and then they'll explain in lay terms what that means, like what was essentially done.
2: Kurgazakt. True.
0: Krikazak's like that. Um, more specifically, there's a guy. His name is Dr. Mobin. He's really good. There's a guy called uh, Dr. John Campbell. He's not a doctor. He's a PhD uh, nurse. A lot of people think he's a doctor. I really do like his content, but I think that he doesn't do a good enough job of specifying that he's not like an MD. Um, so a lot of people think that it's like he's a physician. Um, he does good stuff. Like I said, Dr. Mobina is really good. And they go into like explaining how the articles are done, how the science is done and stuff like that. So, um,
1: yeah, I'm fundamentally
2: learning about research methods.
1: But uh, send those all those links will be in our show notes on off the script
2: What does this mean for pharmacists, guys? This means for pharmacists, we got to wake up.
1: Well, wait, we didn't even get through all your five points yet. Do you want to go through your five points? Oh, did we not? No, we did not.
2: Imagine if we just never got through them. I got to
0: synthesis, which is my third point. We got to synthesis, which is my third point. I take back what I said about John Campbell. Literally, on his channels, on his channels video, um, like the first one, you go to his channel, which will be in the show notes. Uh, he says that he was a nurse for a few years, and he kind of goes through like his professional path. So that is my bad to Dr. John Campbell. He does specify on his channel, but if you just kind of see one of his videos offhandedly, a lot of people say, thank you, Dr. John. And a lot of people still seem to be under the impression despite his best efforts of saying that he is not in fact a physician, but that's my bad. (laughs) So we got to my third point, synthesis, which is basically you can draw on more dif- like different fields and tr- basically stress test your idea vis-a-vis those different fields. Um, the idea then also is the idea that you have greater diversity. So, And why I see those two things as separate, when it comes to a synthesis, you're collating everything together into one cohesive point, whereas with diversity, you can actually – see the fundamental assumptions and the sort of histories and the backgrounds of all these different fields and see how they connect as well. So one is kind of at the point of decision-making and the point of conclusion. That's the synthesis, but also beyond that when you have like greater diversity, it's much like when you're in a meeting and you have different people from different walks of life and experiences, you have more diversity of just sort of perspective. And again, it's that sort of breadth um, that can feed in less in more subtle ways. Um, I'm honestly okay if someone wants to sort of combine the the two points of synthesis and sort of general, like generality into one. Um, but anyway, that's kind of, that's kind of the main point is that at, at various levels of the decision making and sense making process, you have the ability to lean on other things to help and also to contrast against and use as stress tests basically. Um, Do you guys have additional thoughts on that or it's kind of a retry to the previous point? (laughs) Like am I not being clear enough?
1: No, like basically I think you're saying like as a generalist, you get more points of reference to kind of ensure that you're coming to the proper conclusion.
0: Yes, thank you. Like basically if you reach the same conclusion with different ways, it's like doing math. Like if you get the same answer but through multiple different ways of doing it, Sure, some of those ways might be straight up wrong, but if you do like enough different ways that like the majority of them lead to the right answer, it's not guaranteeing that your answer is right, but it definitely indicates that you're on the right path. And so instead of having a single dogmatic way of following through a certain like logical cascade, if you can do it with different paths and you still reach the same place, it's reassuring. Not to say that hasn't happened historically where the conclusion was still wrong, but it's one of those things
2: equips you better for life
0: yeah absolutely and i mean and i think to the point of pharmacists like chris before we had the intermission like how does this impact pharmacists why should pharmacists care wait we need 0.5 though no, we will get to point 0.5. Point 0.5 is, like, is a good one too. But I think that just, again, to Faison's point, it equips you better for life. If you can see things in a, from a financial lens, from a political lens, and sort of dissociate oneself from just their own little bubble and worldview, and I say little not in a diminutive or sort of like condescending way, I literally mean you spend five years in a given environment, it's pretty suffocating in a way. You don't really understand what life is like outside of that. And like we talked about this um we talked i think i talked i think i talked about this about andrew like life outside of the school is so much more different than life in school so it really you kind of have out of necessity this narrowed view of what the world is like and that's why i said little so it's getting out of that breaking that mold and really trying to understand things from a multifaceted perspective that's i think why this is really important for pharmacists and the third point Kind of goes back to the point, it kind of ties it in, sorry, the fifth point, kind of ties it all back with the sunk cost fallacy because as a generalist, there's less risk of dogma and sort of dogmatic adherence to your perspective because you, one, inherently invite a diversity of perspectives, but also you're never so sure and you're never so invested in a given view to begin with that you have to put all your chips on it. So there's less danger of becoming dogmatic and stubborn in your views and more open to seeing conflicting evidence that may undermine because you don't have such a huge sunk cost in that one particular view uh and you're open to saying i don't know and inherently i don't know is antithetical to the concept of a dogma
2: well i want to be part of a dogma
0: that's your choice the the now we get into now we get into free speech, and I think that's a here's the problem. I was about to say free speech is a spicy topic. It fucking shouldn't be, but apparently it is. Um
2: Free speech is very simple. It's like you're free to say whatever you want to say, but I'm also free to tell you that you're stupid.
0: Yeah, no one's debating that. But the question is, should the should any authority be able to impinge on your freedom of speech?
2: Well, I mean, there's there
0: that's that's where people have an issue.
2: I guess it's like it depends on how that speech will impact the greater community at large. Because, like, for example, inciting a riot is against the law. Yeah. But that requires speech, right? So your freedom of speech to incite a riot is taken away from you because it's against the law.
0: Yeah, and I think that there's – I think that at least in the United States – I actually don't know the Canadian, like, code. Um, but I know that in the United States there's three factors – I think I'd have to check this. Um, there was a time when I was a lot more like into like free speech, like the discussion about it and the sort of all that kind of stuff. But, um, in the States, I think there's something like three things. There has to be like plausibility, eminence or like imminence and motivation. Like basically any kind of hate speech is qualified or like dangerous speech is qualified by, uh, possibility which is like if you and i are next door neighbors and i like give you a death threat and you recently like keyed my car like that i don't know if that actually satisfies those criteria but it's like i'm close to you you've given me a reason and like you and like you and i were seeing like arguing on the front lawn the previous day
2: or or, or like when or like when kids like stupid kids like do bomb threats at their school
0: yeah that's that's insane
2: no, but hey, Alex, I'm free to say whatever I want to say. No, you're totally right. But it's like I, I didn't I didn't do anything.
0: No, no, no. And you're well, you're right. And I mean that's the whole point. But the question becomes, what do we classify as harmful, I guess? Or like what is the threshold for something being deemed unacceptable? Right. And this is an answer I don't think anyone today has an answer to. There's a lot of people who purport to know, but it's a tricky, tricky subject.
1: And that's the problem, I guess, because I mean, that's what all anti-vaxxers and anti-corporate people think they're doing too, right? Are they really causing harm by inciting more belief in anti-vax?
2: Well, I want to ask you guys a question because I think this is a hot topic that we can conclude on, uh, even though we're talking about generalism and specialism, um, but now we're kind of on the topic of freedom. Um, What are your thoughts about the Quebec, uh, possible Quebec legislation? Did you hear about this, Alexa?
1: the passport.
2: They're going to implement a tax on Quebec citizens for not being vaccinated.
0: Yeah, Greece has already done that to their senior citizens.
2: Do you do you agree with that or do you disagree with that? Because it's a very hot topic right now in Canada.
1: Economically, the way that I have looked at it or have considered it is that if you are unvaccinated, you are statistically more likely to put a higher cost on the rest of society due to your hospitalization from COVID. I think that is the main argument for it. Um, there's uh, many arguments against it, and I even feel like it's I am, I'm almost against it even though I, I actually do obviously believe in vaccines. I think just the idea of taxing someone for that is a slippery slope in that do you tax people who smoke? Do you tax people who are overweight? Do you tax people who are genetic? But they, but they do, but they do. Do you tax people who are born with cystic fibrosis?
0: Do you tax people that are overweight? Do you tax people with sedentary lifestyles? Do you tax people that have diabetes? Do you tax people that don't take their medications?
2: No, no, no but but they do tax smokers and al- and people who drink.
0: Okay, but what about all the other health groups that we just described?
2: Yes, but 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 it's like you could also argue the slippery slope for for smoking and alcohol because that's a personal choice, right?
0: Yeah, but they're goods and services. They're not behaviors. You have to purchase alcohol. You have to purchase a cigarette.
2: Goods and services. Okay. Okay.
0: Like, if if to be anti-vax, you had to buy something else, yeah, fucking tax that. But if we're just taxing behaviors, which are, like, economically neutral, like what I mean, like, there's no exchange of currency, neutral – that's a slippery slope. Because again, what do you do? What do you do with people with, you know, what do you do to all people that are non-compliant with their medications? We know tons of them. God knows non-compliance is a huge issue. Should everyone who's non-compliant be taxed? I'm not saying that wouldn't be good for the society.
2: No, no, no. Of course. It's a, it's a, it's a concept.
0: Yeah. But no, no. But I'm also thinking like if you had like a dictatorship and you wanted everyone to be healthy, if you had people's, if you had like tax benefits, that were based on, uh, that were based on um, compliance, that'd be really interesting as an economic test to see like, okay, if you get X amount of money back from taxes every season, if you can prove that you were 95 plus percent compliant, tracking that would be really hard and would be a huge infringement of privacy. But, you know, never mind that. I think that'd be really beneficial ultimately because you have a lot of people that are way more adherent because they have a financial incentive. But the question becomes as a society – do we need to have financial carrots and sticks to drive our behavior, or should we just rely on citizens to be free and make the choices they think are right for them? I hope that my cynicism is unfounded, and I hope that I'm wrong about the misuses of power that we've seen historically, and I hope that they won't be uh, repeated and that, you know, humanity has learned from our mistakes in a rather bleak 20th century. I'm just cautious I guess I'm just a risk averse individual. So that's kind of my perspective
1: and where I'm coming from.
2: It's okay, Alexa Dory. Thanks. Dory.
1: Um, this is episode's gone on long enough, but I did actually want to bring it back to generalists versus specialists because I think this has been a great conversation. I know like we're kind of arguing for the individual, and maybe more so for our listeners in their pursuit of a better career to be a generalist because your skills are just so much more applicable if you take into perspective other perspectives, right? But um, I guess not everyone can be a generalist is Is my argument, right? Maybe within the realm of pharmacy you could be, but. Wouldn't you argue that you need specialists in society in order for, you know, scientific advancements to come through, for society to continue moving forward to better things like solving climate change, exploring space, whatever you want to do? Because you need to have such a specialized body of knowledge in order to do those things. And like you need to study for years and years in order to build that knowledge base to to actually create change that you want to see. And within the realm of astrophysics, whatever the study of climate change is called, <laughs> um, meteorology, I don't know, Do, are they meteorologists? But what, sure, but whatever they're called, I'm sure like, you still need to have like a wide perspective if possible. It's it's obviously beneficial. But just from like a macro perspective, wouldn't you say like you need specialists to still exist for society?
2: Becoming a, a specialist for some is like a necessary, like it's almost like you're, it's like a sacrifice to yourself for the better of society.
1: Yeah, I, I do hear that a lot from like researchers almost like they're so passionate about their field and they care so much about whatever they're studying. And like part of that is it becomes their identity, but I'd like to hopefully think that they also just care about their research and they really do think it will make an impact. And like, if they don't do it, no one else will. Cause like, you know, not everyone can care about every minor condition that affects a certain, you know, you know, three in a million people. 100%.
0: I agree. Absolutely. They're necessary for society to advance. Um, The only thing is that I sort of, from my very limited perspective, I just caution against giving specialists too much authority and too much um, prestige so that they can, you know, step out of their lane with impunity, that's that's more my point is, and it's not really society that should stop them from doing that. I would hope the specialists, being such high-minded individuals, should hold them to that standard in the first place and be very aware, right, and to not give in to the ego of like, oh, I've done so much in this field, I should be able to talk shit about anything. But it's like no, like it's kind of a stay in your lane situation, and it should apply to everyone. And I guess it's fundamentally the principle of humility. I also want to sort of offer an olive branch to all the specialists out there. The work they do is insanely hard and research is often thankless work that can go years and lifetimes unacknowledged. Like we all know the big scientists in history, but how many other people were their successes built on? And so many people don't get the recognition. And I think that's another problem with the commercial cult of personality and stuff where we would rather keep up with X personality du jour, but not know really, really impactful members of society and give them the credit that they're due. So if it's done out of passion, that's amazing. And it often is because it's not done out of like fame seeking. Um, My only thing is that I've run into enough folks who are so down their own rabbit hole that they think that it's ubiquitous knowledge uh, that can be applied anywhere. And that is fundamentally, like maybe I came a bit down, I came across as a bit down on specialists. But really, it's just that I think when it comes to power, decision making and sense making, a greater balance needs to be afforded to the discussion. Like this podcast, we're here to have a chat. And I think that we can all learn from that.
1: I think we had a crazy discussion today about so many different things. So hopefully you guys didn't get lost. But uh, check our show notes. We're going to have a lot of them for this episode, it sounds like, on offthescriptshow.com. You can now rate our podcast on Spotify, now being January 2022, which is when we're recording it. So hopefully you would have already rated it. And we're signing off. Bye. As always, visit offthescriptshow.com to see our show notes and more, and we'd really appreciate if you leave us a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Off the Script is produced by Chris Tse, Fezan Beg, Alexa Stankic, and Tom Fung. Quality control is completed by Stephen Guan. Mixing and editing is done by Chris Tse. Off the Script is a podcast focused on education and entertainment. We are not a replacement for real medical advice. Please see your local healthcare professional for your health needs. Thank you to Sean Singh for creating our introductory music. And thank you to ChillHop for letting us use their music for our intermission and ending. You can find more of their music at chillhop.com listen.